0: All right, open uh to first John if you would. We're continuing in our study. We're gonna be in first John chapter two, verses fifteen through seventeen. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, it is awesome to worship you, not to waste our worship on vain and passing things, but to worship the true and holy Creator, God, who is our Lord and our Savior. What an awesome privilege and we thank you for it. Father, this morning as we come to your word, it's always a a weighty thing to come to your word. And this morning particularly is a weighty thing. And so we ask that you would uh, quiet our hearts, help our minds to stop spinning and to focus on what we're doing here and now. Not worried about what happened last week or what's going to happen after we leave here. Help us to focus on the here and now of your word and our opportunity to worship you in studying it. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, that we would be receptive to what your word says. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in our midst Pray that you would convict us concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Pray that we would be sensitive to you and listening to you. Pray that you would work through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a book several years ago about uh, a man that I I don't admire in the least. His name is Robert Hansen. And uh, he worked for the FBI for decades and he 's from Chicago, and he decided in one thousand nine hundred and seventy nine that he would start selling secrets to the soviets i don 't know why, and they really never could explain why, but he started selling secrets and and uh, at first, it was just a little thing to see if he could do it and uh, and then as he he progressed and got you know climbed further up the chain in the FBI and became more and more uh, important and privy to to more and more sensitive information, he continued to pass that on. And uh, so the result is for him that he's serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole in Colorado right now. He was caught in 2001. Between 1979 and 2001, he sold $1.4 million worth of secrets. I don't know how many secrets that is, but $1.4 million. And he was finally caught for it. And if you think about that, it was the Soviet Union to begin with. And then after, uh, after 91, it wasn't the Soviet Union anymore. He was, he was working for Russia. You know, and that was open times and different things like that. And, and we thought we were coming closer with Russia and things like that. But in, in fact, he continued to sell secrets, even during that time, up until 2001 when he was finally caught. But they never really could explain why he did it. He can't really explain why he did it. He made $1.4 million over that period of time. That's about $65,000 a year. But he couldn't spend it because he was being watched. He knew he was being watched. He worked for the FBI. And, uh, and he actually worked in the uh, counter espionage unit. So he was in charge of the investigation to find himself. So he couldn't spend the money that he was making. He would just pocket it. And his wife would wonder why there were rolls and rolls of cash in his sock drawer. But he, didn't, he, he couldn't do anything with it, so he started asking for diamonds and things like that and couldn't spend those, couldn't sell them. It was completely wasted. So it wasn't for money. It wasn't for money that he did it. And it wasn't even that he was particularly anti-American. He didn't hate America per se. He wasn't a, a socialist. He wasn't a communist. He wasn't necessarily pro-Russian. But he did it. And I, I think it's interesting. Uh, as near as they could tell why he did it, it came down to two reasons. First of all, they said it was, had something to do with his own ego, that he just wasn't getting the respect that he thought he deserved at the FBI. And so he'd show them, he'd sell some state secrets. I don't get the connection there, but that's what they said. And the second one is he was just allured by the idea of outsmarting the people he worked with. He just loved that idea of outsmarting the FBI. And so that was a huge motivation for him. He just wanted to outsmart them. He wanted to be better than them. So he decided to risk everything and to start selling state secrets just because he was excited by the idea of it. Right in the middle of the Cold War, 1979, right in the middle of the Cold War is when he started doing it. And I don't know the exact number, I'm not sure anyone does, of how many uh, undercover agents he got killed because of the secrets that he sold. He would just, just give names. And so the, the Soviets would, would get this list of names and they would say, okay, well, we need to go and kill so-and-so of their own people, kill so-and-so of their own people, or kill so-and-so who's an American, you know, who's, who's in this, uh, who's infiltrated the Soviet Union or whatever. Tons of people were killed. Robert Hansen switched his allegiances right in the middle of the Cold War in an extremely dramatic and, and very damaging way cost lots of lives, lots of money. It was a huge problem. His life is evidence that our allegiances, our loyalties can be compromised in some pretty insidious ways. So let's look at the allegiances of Christians and the world. Let's read chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. So I think first of all. We need to understand a little bit of what world means here. If we're not supposed to love it. Let's try and understand what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the created order. He's not talking about the trees we see outside. Or the sun or the air we're breathing. Or other people. He's not talking just about physical creation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something a little bit different. He's talking about the realm. Of Satan's reign. Which is. In rebellion against god it's always rebelling against him it's the system or the world order in its alignment against god's purposes and will so it's 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 world in a different sense not physical sphere that is this earth that's not what it means it's that idea that principle that rebels against god and we see it all around us right we see it within ourselves Flip over to uh, chapter 4. I just want to read verses 1 through 3. He talks about the world a little bit here. If that's the definition of what the world is, then who and what is in the world? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the world itself is in rebellion against God. And those who are in the world, particularly that we're talking about here, what is in the world and who is in the world that we're talking about, it's the spirit that's against Christ, the spirit that's against God. And that doesn't... um, doesn't mean antichrist as in the one who's going to come and, and, you know, the beast and all that stuff. Not, not specifically that, though, of course, he will be against God also, but that's not specifically it. In the world, you have the spirit of false prophets who deny that Je- Jesus is from God. We're going to talk about that. We'll get to that uh, on, an, on a later week. They're just like the world and the world listens to them and the world receives them with open arms. So the world is very happy to receive these kind of people. So that's what we have in the world, okay? There's a close relationship between those insidious, false prophets, spirits that are against God, that are against us, and the world order, all right? So we're starting to build uh, a little bit of a world there, and it sounds to me like it might be a little bit of a dangerous place for us to be. So if that's who and what uh, what inhabits the world, What do you think the world thinks about us? What does the world think of us? I just want to refer to a couple of aspects of the world's disposition towards us. The world's disposition towards us. Chapter 3 and verse 1 says the world doesn't know you because it didn't know Jesus. It doesn't know you. Chapter 5 and verse 19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Chapter 3 and verse 13 gets even worse. The world just hates you. Just hates you. Since the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, it didn't know Jesus. And since it didn't know Jesus, it doesn't know you. And it's even more than that. It's not just that it doesn't know you, doesn't recognize you, doesn't understand you. It hates you. The world hates you. So if that's what's in the world and that's what the world thinks of us, then a question comes to mind. What's to love? We've been commanded, don't love the world. Well, it sounds to me like something that we wouldn't naturally love anyway, right? It's dominated by our enemy. False prophets who are teaching a watered-down version of Jesus are received with joy and their lies are, are received as, as if they're liberating truths. And followers of Christ are, uh, at best, misunderstood or even hated. So given what the world is like, what's to love? When we look at it this way, it seems like a pretty cut-and-dried case. And the real problem comes with the character of the world. Look back at our text here. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So this list that it gives here is a an insight into the character of the world, what the world is like. And most of your Bibles probably say lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, instead of desire of the flesh, flesh, desire of the eyes. Those two words are the same. There's, there's no difference in the Greek. It's the exact same word. And it's, it's neutral. It's not always negative. It's usually negative in the New, in the New Testament. But it's what uh, Paul says when he says that uh, if anyone desires the, uh, well, if, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good thing. It's the exact same word. All right, so it's, it's just this idea of, of, of wanting, which itself is neutral. All right, so mine says desires. <clears throat> so what are the desires of the, of the flesh? If you were to list them off, if you were to define it, how would you do that? How would you define desires of the flesh? Well, I think a definition, a simple one is the base passions that are connected with our sinful fallen nature. Those cravings, that spring from that fallen nature. Okay, that's, that's the desires of the flesh. Now, that's still a little bit abstract, right? That's kind of hard to get your, your mind around. So let's flip over to Romans chapter 13. Because Paul gives a list in Romans 13. Romans 13, we're going to start in verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. And here's his list. Not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy, but put on the lord jesus christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So that's a that's one picture. It's a pretty gritty picture. It's not you know one you would expect at least when I was younger to to see on TV. Right? The, the desires of the flesh, it's pretty pretty bad stuff. There's another list that he gives that's even longer. Flip over to Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. And then he gives a a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's quite a list. So that's the desires of the flesh. That's what our flesh wants. That's what our fallen human nature seeks after. Now, praise the Lord that not all of us go in for all of these things, right? The world, you know, we may be in 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 our spirit, in our nature, totally depraved, but we're not completely depraved. We don't go after all of those things. But the desire and the seeds for those things are in each one of us. It's just that we, in our own ways, individual ways, pursue certain of those and not others. It's in our sinful human nature. It's in our flesh. The character of the world is such that it tugs at our flesh. It's working with what's, with what's in us. Not our physical bodies, but our flesh, our nature, who we are. It tugs at that. It works with that. It plays on our desires, desires that, are, that in and of themselves are neutral, but they become warped and twisted in our fallen nature. And the world plays on those and brings them out. Those are the desires of the flesh. So it uses secret agents sort of inside of us. To bring us to love the world more and more. It draws us to love the world. Come on, just, just here, this way, this way. This secret bait. This is how you're drawn in. We're carrying around a piece of the world in our own fallen nature. It comes with its own desires, lusts, and passion that would uh, betray us at any time. So, as if having our own flesh and its sinful desires to deal with weren't bad enough, there's more. He goes on in his list. We're also faced with the desires of the eyes. The desires of the eyes. Now, how do we define that? What's the difference between the desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh? I think it's a little bit confusing when we just, when we just read our New Testament. What's, what's the difference between the two? Well, the, the desires of the flesh are inside of us. They inhabit us already, okay? And a button gets pushed. And these, these desires jump into action, okay? The desires of the of the eyes are a little bit different. That's when we may be doing okay. We're not, you know, the desires of the flesh aren't, aren't running away with us. We're, we've got, got that under control. But we have these eyes, see, and it lets the world in. Because we don't just have to deal in here. We have to interact with the world, right? So we have these eyes and they see something. And it causes one of these desires in us to spring up. All right. So, it, and it usually leads to covetousness because the idea is, ooh, I see that, now I want that. You know, the, the whole idea of marketing, I'm not against marketing, but I tell you what, if if this didn't exist, if the desires of the eyes didn't exist, marketing would be a bust. It would never exist because the idea is to show something to you, then to convince you, I want that. And it presents it in such a way to make it even more appealing. And what it's doing is interacting with our own desires of the flesh that we have inside of us. It's interacting. It draws us. And boom, it raises covetousness. I really got to have that. I got to have that. When we were in Russia, they have commercials and stuff on TV and things like that. But we never watched TV. We just didn't watch it. And so uh, our kids never saw those commercials. And when I grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons... It was always commercials about some new cool truck or little toy gun that shot Nerf somethings or whatever. And, and so we, we wanted that stuff, right? Well, my kids weren't exposed to that sort of thing when we were in Russia. They, they didn't see those kind of commercials. And so they didn't have that constant, Daddy, can I have that? Can I, can I have that? I got to have that. Didn't exist. And then we moved back to the States and turned on the TV. And all of a sudden, my kids got to have everything, right? Gabriel especially, ooh, I need that, and I need that, and I need that, and I need that. That cool new, you know, little car that does such and such or, or whatever, and it's just playing on those desires that he has already inside, but now it's accessing them through his eyes because he sees someone else has that. I want that. That's covetousness. He wants it because he saw it. And of course, if we think of examples in the Bible, a couple come to mind. The first one probably, most obviously, is David and Bathsheba, Right? Bathsheba's taking a bath on, on the roof of her house, which seems strange to us, and in that culture, I don't know, maybe something different, but David saw her and he had to have her, right So he saw her and boom it aroused in, in him those, those desires and he went after him. But there's another one that, that came more to my mind, and I think it's because of a translation I read of it, but it has it's, uh, it's Samson when we first start reading about Samson, and he goes down to visit the Philistines and he comes but he sees this woman down there. And he comes back and he, and he tells his parents, um, go down and get her for me because she looks good to me. That's the, I don't remember which translation that was, but she looks good to me. And, uh, and so his parents say, no, you know, we're not going to do that. Why don't you why, marry one of your own people? You don't need to go marry a Philistine. And he says, no, she's the one I want. I saw her. She looks good to me. My translation says she looked right in his eyes. She looked right. And so he wanted her. And so his parents gave into it. And what ended up happening? You who know that story, what, what happened? There's this big wedding, you have all kinds of things happen, and ultimately it was war with the Philistines because he went after that woman, okay? He saw her and he had to have her. The desires of the eyes, and it's, it's got to do with covetousness. It, it often has to do with, with a, a sexual kind of lust also uh, because we see and we, and we want. It's a covetousness in a different kind. So there's a third passion. We've looked at the first two, the desires of the flesh that are inside of us, the desires of the eyes that come in from without and trigger those passions from within. And there's a third. It's a little more subtle than the other two. And it's called pride in possessions. Or yours probably says um, boastful pride of life or something like that. And it, obviously it's not an easy thing to translate or they would all be translated the same. It's, but the idea is, the the uh taking taking glory and pride in what it takes to make your life work in the things of your life the stuff of your life that's why pride and possessions mind says the boastful pride of life uh is a little bit vague but it has it has to do with our stuff the things that it takes to live well of course it takes things to live we have to have food you know we we need to have shelter uh we we need to have some of those things right but it's the, it takes those basic Things that we need, and it builds on them, and builds on them, and builds on them, and it becomes a, a real pride in what I have that I'm important because I have this great, you know, tie or the latest gadget or you know a great car or whatever. I take pride in that. It it makes me who I am. It makes me better than you. That's that's kind of what's important about the thing. Makes me better than you. Boastful pride of life. It's a little bit different. It's similar to greed. It has to do with seeking satisfaction in possessions, in stuff. There's a sense of superiority because of material circumstances. The word for life, when it says boastful pride of life there, is is the word bios, which we get the word biology, biosphere. It has to do with life, right? Right? Uh, symbiotic, those those sort of, of words come from that. And it has to do with physical, tangible life, okay? It has to do with, with the sphere of, of our life here. If you remember John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and may have it abundantly. He uses a different word for life there. It's the word zoe, and it... it The idea is more of eternal life. It's it's not physical, biological life that we have here and share with animals and things like that. It's not that. It has to do with eternal life. It has to do with, with our connection with eternity. So Jesus said, I came that they might have life, real life, not life in this physical body and have it abundantly. And so what you have here when when uh, pride and possessions or boastful pride of life takes over is that whereas jesus said we're he wants us to have life above abundantly we take that and we translate that to mean life in this physical body abundantly i'm going to do it to the utmost i'm going to own the most such and such or the newest gadget or the coolest this or that or something better than what you have all right that's what it is we're majoring in the minors we're focusing on this physical tangible temporal life and the stuff that goes with it instead of eternal life we we started seeing this in in uh, russian christians if you compare when we were back there from in 96 and 97 to when we were just back there <clears throat> you can see a real difference there's there's been an awakening of this desire for stuff amongst amongst Russian Christians, all Russians, but we dealt mostly with Russian Christians and we saw it with them, whereas you, they used to be content with eternal life and life above and they didn't have anything in this life. They were getting by barely in this life and that was fine and that helped them to look to the eternal. That's the way it used to be. Well, now, when we went back this last time, everybody has a 3 or 400 dollar cell phone they they drive immaculately clean nice expensive cars their houses are getting bigger their stuff is getting bigger and what's happening what's happening to their spiritual lives it starts spiraling downwards because they're so satisfied now in this world why even look to the future world i'm satisfied with my my bios Why do I need that life? I'm satisfied with this life here on earth. And I think about that and I think about myself and I know we live in a materialistic culture, right? I know we do, it's clear. But you could see the change happening there because it went from the way it used to be to something that it is now and you could see that change. And we, in ours, have already made that change, I think. I think that's a real struggle in our culture is that we become so satisfied because I can meet my needs physically with stuff around me. I can make myself feel better. I can have better, cooler stuff. And I can make this life really neat. And yeah, the future life. Yeah, I'll I'll get to that sometime. Eternal life, eh, someday. Right now, now is the here and now. That's where we are. We've got to make that work. I think that's a danger of our culture. So the character of the world is that it plays on our weaknesses with its desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes and boastful pride of life or pride in possessions. So we've been told don't love the world. What happens when we do love the world? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the first thing that we need to understand is that the choice to love the world precludes love for the Father, precludes love for the Father. Now, I have the same nature you have. And our nature says, I want to have it both ways. I really do want to have it both ways. The world appeals to me. I want to have the world, but I also want to be right with God. All right, I don't want to be separated. I want it both ways. I'll have a little from column A and a little from column B. Right? That's the way we want it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. God says here that it's, it's either one or the other. It's similar to what Jesus said when he said you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. To love the world is not to love the Father. You can only love one at a time because they are diametrically opposed to one another. And it's an ongoing choice. You see, it's, it's not a once-for-all deal. This is scary-sounding, right? It's kind of scary-sounding. I either love the world or I love the Father. Now, the fact is, I will confess to you, there are times I love the world. There are ways I love the world. All right? We all have that. We all have that in us. I'm not saying, um, you know, that I made a decision. I made a decision years ago to love the Father, and the love of the world pff, hasn't crept in. No problem since then, right? Many of you know I I started running in January. I decided I was tired of being out of shape, tired of being winded all the time, whatever. So I started running, and I've never been a runner. And I set my mind to it, and I knew that I was going to cop out, so I told Al Munoz that I was going to do it. And then I'm locked in. I'm locked in. Right, Al? Amen. (laughs) Accountability. So Al starts asking me, so you started running yet? You started running yet? So anyway, It worked. OK, but as time went on and I was running more and more miles, I'll tell you what, there were many times when I was out running in the desert and I was thinking, you know, I decided I was going to run X number of miles today. I don't want to. I just don't want to. I want to stop right here, thumb a ride back to my house and put my feet up. That's what I want to do. You know, and, and you would think I made a decision. Well, I'm not some iron willed guy. I made a decision and I almost unmade it many, many times. There were lots of times I almost unmade it. Now, praise the Lord, you know, I kept running and I didn't have to film any rides and, and you know, I made it to race day, just let you know, like I had wanted to. But it wasn't like I made some decision and that's it. It's never a question again. And if that if that were the case in our lives where we could just make a decision, then what we would all do is we would all sit right here and we would make the decision, let's love the Father, not the world. We would all make a pact, agree with one another, and we would pray and make it so. And then we would never have to read verses 15 through 17 again, Right? But that's not the way it is. It's ongoing. Every step of the run, you're thinking, man, I don't know. I'd really like to stop. I'd really like to stop. You're passing your friend's house and you're thinking, I could go inside and have a glass of tea instead of be doing this. The temptations are there all the time. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. So we can't love the world and love God at the same time. When we choose to love the world instead of loving God, we are turning our back on Him. We are not loving the Father. Love for the world precludes love for the Father. All right? But he continues. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, John has a reason for saying what he said. When he said, if anyone loves the Father, or if if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not with him, not in him. When he said that, he had a reason. And here's the reason. The reason is because of the opposition between God and the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When we follow the desires of our flesh, when we follow after the world, when we throw our lot in with the world, We're actually selling our allegiance like Robert Hansen did. Selling our allegiance. We're selling our passions. We're selling our affections. And we're giving them to God's enemy. That's what we're doing when we do that. And you can't have love for God and his enemy at the same time. They're in direct opposition to God. So when we do that, And we do it. I do it. We're committing treason. Where's our allegiance? Who's Who's our Lord? Jesus is Lord, right? Jesus is our Lord. Okay? He's my Lord. And for many of you, I know that's true. But I act against him. And when I act against him, that's what I'm doing. Committing treason. We give support to the rebellion against the almighty and rightful king. So loving the world is opposition to the Father since the world itself is in opposition to the Father. Verse 17 says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, the world is passing away. The world did not pass away yesterday. It's really tempting to go down that rabbit trail, but I won't. Really tempting. The world is passing away, all right? Not just not on May 21st, 2001 or 2011. All right. How many of you have read the book of Ecclesiastes? I want to, I want to work on this idea of how the world is passing away. The book of Ecclesiastes, I think gets a, gets a bad reputation and it all comes down with a translation of one little word and it's the word vanity, right? Vanity. What does that mean? Well, vanity in Hebrew just means like mist. Now, is mist a bad thing? When you go out in, in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, and it's, and it's cold and you breathe and, and you see mist. That's kind of that word in, in, in Hebrew. Well, is it a bad thing that the wind blows it away and it's gone? It just is temporary. That's all it means, right? It's not lasting. You can't grab it. You can't catch it. You can't bottle it up. You can't keep it. It doesn't mean it's horribly vain. Stay away from it. That's not what it means. It means it's vaporous, it's passing. All right, so what sort of things uh, does the author of Ecclesiastes talk about and say are vain? I think people don't like to read it because it sounds so negative. You know, I pursued wisdom and behold, it was vain. And you're thinking, okay, this guy is crazy. And what's he saying, right? Is he some sort of, you know, nut job or is he just depressed? Or, you know, how are we supposed to understand that? Well, if we pursue Wisdom for the sake of wisdom. Disconnected from God? It is vanity. Why is that? He says in Ecclesiastes, the wise and the foolish both die. You're going to die anyway. If you invested your life, even though it's in a good thing, wisdom, at the end, boom, you're dead, and it's gone. He says that about knowledge, gaining knowledge, he says that about self-indulgence. He was the king. He was the richest king. And he went in whole hog into self-indulgence. He drank everything. He, you know, had tons of wives. He, you know, put all this pleasure, his whole everything around him and he got to the end of it. and said, you know, it's all vanity. It's all vanity. It's passing away. You can't get anything lasting from that. He says even toil, working, hard work, discipline. It's vanity. It's passing away. You can, you can work hard your whole life and then you die. Now, it's better to work hard than to be a lazy bum. He says stuff like that. It's better to be wise than a fool. He says that. But in the end, it's vanity. It's fleeting. It's passing. It's going away. Wealth and honor the same way. The world is temporary in that sense. It's coming to an end. Our time in this world is also temporary. It would be an eternal disaster to live as if this world were the only one. Or even the most important one. Yeah, the afterlife, it exists. But, you know, we're here. Got to live here. That would be a disaster. That would be a huge mistake. Jesus said in Mark 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The world is passing away and those desires that seem so pressing and so urgent and so powerful, they scream to be gratified or else, they're passing away too. See, right now when we're in the midst of it, we're, we're in the midst of this life and we have these desires, whatever they are, we're thinking, I don't know. I mean, I, ca- I can't bear this forever. There's no way I can bear this. You know, if I, you know, I'm 37, if I live another... 50 years, I'm going to have to deal with this thing for 50 years? No way, I can't do it. It just seems so oppressive. It seems to master us. It seems to dominate us. But those desires are passing away too, in the same way. They're fleeting. Now, we're not guaranteed that we will make it to our deathbed. What do I mean on that? We could die in an accident. We could die completely unexpectedly. Out of the blue, right? So we're not guaranteed to be able to make it to our deathbed, all right? But assuming we were at our deathbed, what would you be reflecting back on your life and thinking? Let's say you're, let's say you're 94 years old, and you're thinking back on your life and pondering, are you going to be thinking stuff like this? I wish I had acquired more stuff. I wish I had gotten drunk a lot more. Uh, Boy, I I sure wish I had been more sexually immoral. That would have just changed everything. I wish I had hated a few more people. That would have been a great improvement. I wish I had been more envious of others. I wish I had been more angry with people. Is that what you're going to be thinking? No, it's not. You're not going to be thinking those things because those passions are all fleeting. Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes says it very interesting. He says in uh, chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will take it to heart. Fleeting, passing. So what's the alternative? How do we apply this? What does this mean for us? Don't love the world. Okay, well... Sounds great. What, what does it mean? How, how do we do it? Or, you know, sorry, I love the world. What do I do to stop loving the world? Okay, how do we do that? So I want that to be me. I want to be whoever does the will of God, abides forever. I want that to be me and you want that to be you, right? So what do we do? Well, first of all, I think it has to do with what he, what he calls the will of God here. He says, whoever does the will of God, so this is something that we can do, will abide forever. I think what he's referring back to is uh, verse 6. Look in your Bibles at verse 6. Chapter 2 and verse 6 of 1 John. Whoever says he abides in him, in Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So how did he walk? All right, we're getting a little closer. Walk like Jesus. How did he walk? Well, he walked in obedience, right, to the Father. He had his gaze fixed on the Father, and he wasn't distracted by temptations and desires around him, by the world around him. The world could not lure him in like it wanted to. He made no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So how do we do that? How do we walk like him? How do we get to that point? Well, I think we can figure out how to get there by looking at where we've come from. Romans chapter one tells, tells the story of how we got to where we are morally, how we got where we are in, our, in our, our being, our nature, and who we are. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them since God has shown it to them. I lost it. I had it. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Do you know what it says next? For images Resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles, gave up the glory of the immortal God and they traded it for little pictures and dolls and idols, images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So you watch their downward progression. Where did it start? Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And then it was a downward spiral from there. That's where we start with honoring him, acknowledging him, understanding who he is. How do we do that? How do do we learn about that? Well, being at church is a good thing. We're here together. We're learning about that. That's a good thing. It has to do with the Bible. We need to have our mind renewed And the way that happens is from the Bible, from Bible reading, Bible study, learning your Bible, memorizing, being here and listening to it. All these things are important. Now, the Bible is like the the antidote to the world. Okay, now you're guaranteed a daily shot of the world. I guarantee it. Okay, if you're alive today, you have gotten and are getting a daily shot of the world. But what about the Bible? Do you get a daily shot of the Bible? Is it a part of your life? Is it influencing you in the same way to the same degree that the world is? This is huge. This is huge in us making progress. I guarantee you, if if you sat in a dark room with no lights on a chair for a twenty four hour period, you still got your shot of the world. Because you carried inside of you. You didn't need to see anything, you didn't need to interact with anyone. You carry it with you. And the antidote is the Bible. We need to be reading our Bibles. We need to know our Bibles. The Bible tells us who we are. The Bible tells us who God is and how we can know him. And you can hear that here. And you can hear that from your friends or from a radio station or something like that. But it is not the same as cracking the word for yourself and reading it for yourself. But it all starts, it all starts with us understanding and admitting that we love the world. There are ways I love the world. We have to start there. And then we move forward. We need the word. We need prayer. We need each other. But that central key thing that I think is missing for so many of us is the Bible. The Bible. So we need to recognize that we love it. And for some of us, for some of us, we need, we need to put Jesus on initially. Like we need to we need to be converted. We need to come to know him. The reason I say put Jesus on is because of what Paul said in Romans 13, 14, he said, we need to make no provision for the flesh to gratify their desires. And, and what's the antidote there? How do you keep from doing that? He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. For believers, that's something that we do regularly. We need to do that regularly. And for some people, you need to do that the first time. It's never been done. You've never put on Jesus So we need to come to know him. We need to have forgiveness of our sins. We need to know the king of the universe. We need to know who we are in relation to him. It may be that we actually need to recognize that we've never come to know him at all. If that's the case, and if, if there's someone here who has heard stuff, has heard some things, uh, maybe they've heard before, or maybe this is all brand new, and they don't even know who Jesus is. Come talk to me afterwards. I'll be visible. I'm easy to spot in my outfit. Come talk to me because you need to know him. You need to come to know him. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you that um, greater is he who is in us, you, than he who is in the world. And so because of that, we can overcome and we can have victory. Thank you that you forgive us for those times we love the world and those ways we love the world. Father, I pray that you would uh, help us to be obedient to this passage. Lord, that we would go forth and and, uh, love you more and more and the world less and less. Pray for your help in that. Bless us as we go this week pray that you would be honored in our, in our lives. Thank you that we have uh, people with us who have been in the hospital recently and uh, we praise you for their health and, and uh, that they're doing better. We give glory to you for it, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. You're dismissed.